You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy, Chairboat, Proctor, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And as always, our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left off last time with the departure of three ships from Nassau, carrying most of the Pirates of the Fancy away from New Providence Island. One was headed for America, the other two for the British Isles. But I'd like to take a moment here, just at the outset, to talk about what they left in their wake. Nicholas Trott despite the reputation that he earned from dealing with pirates, was actually a pretty good governor. They call those early governors the proprietary governors, after the lord's proprietor under whom they served. Nicholas Trott was the last proprietary governor, but arguably the best. In part, thanks to his dealing with those pirates, he was really able to help Nassau grow. Before Governor Trott and... Henry Every, Nassau was a pretty ramshackle affair, but here it began to really evolve. The Wheel of Fortune Inn expanded. It added that second floor, and Nassau even had need to add another tavern, this time a proper tavern with food and everything. Nicholas Trott also built a church. Moralizers would tell you that he did it to repent for his sins, but... Honestly, Nassau just needed a church. They'd probably been meeting at the tavern. He also built a government house. That's a building up on the hill meant for council meetings and that also would house the governor's offices. Now, Nassau was no Charleston, much less a Boston. It wasn't even a a Kingston. But it was beginning, finally, to feel like a proper township. But Nicholas Trott's greatest addition to Nassau Town was the fortress. There was an old Mott and Bailey kind of affair up on the hill, basically just a palisade wall with a gun battery overlooking the harbor. In its prime, it wasn't much to speak of, and it was far from its prime. It was, in fact, in total disrepair. But Nicholas Trott 
with the addition of funds from Henry Avery, began to build a real stone fortress. Now, it wasn't all Nicholas Trott's idea. The building of a fortress there at Nassau was part of his writ, handed down by the king, part of an act of parliament. That fortress was critical to securing Nassau, which was critical to securing the Bahamas, which was critical to the war effort, but not critical enough for the government of England to actually send him any money or stone or anything. He just kind of had to figure it out and do it. And to be fair, he did. The Crown would have, actually they did, disapprove of his methods, but the results were undeniable. This was going to be an impressive fortress. You know, nothing to compare to the great fortresses of the Rhineland or parts of Italy, but as far as colonial naval fortifications go, it had a lot to offer. It was a four-sided, four-pointed star fort. You should picture a square fort up on a bluff overlooking Nassau and the harbor. The first side faced north to the water. The second faced east to the town. The third faced south to the hills and government house, and the fourth faced west, guarding that approach to Nassau. But each of the corners had a diamond-shaped tower attached, and that's the key, that's what makes a star fort a star fort. Those towers, not hugely tall, just usually another level, but their narrow diamond shape gave a sight line and a line of fire that left no dead zones near the fortress. That is to say that anyone who was approaching the fortress, on foot or with cannons or with siege engines, well, they, no matter where they were, could be hit with an artillery barrage before they ever got close enough to even think about opening fire. And here at Nassau, you had two towers close to the water, one overlooking the town and the port itself, and the other overlooking the entrance to the port. Thanks to Nassau's unique harbor, there is an island that guards most of the harbor, so there's really only one way in and one way out. But thanks to that design, anybody who wanted to enter Nassau's harbor had to pass under those guns. And they were impressive guns. Fort Nassau was armed with 22 bronze cannon, most likely 18-pounders or perhaps even 24-pounders. And we're not actually supposed to call them cannon anymore. The term long gun, or more commonly artillery, is preferred these days. But that's what they were, just big old cannons that shot either 18 or 24-pound cannonballs. And I feel pretty confident with those specs. See, most frigates in the Age of Sail carried only one single caliber of gun. That was so their cannonballs could fit in any gun on board. Usually, a frigate carried 18-pound guns. 24-pounders were reserved for ships of the line, but it's not out of the question that the brothers Hublon, when they were building the Charles II, spared no expense on the guns and procured those larger 24-pounders. And the guns there at Fort Nassau were certainly the same guns that the Hublon brothers bought. They were the fancies guns. I mean, where else are you going to get those? England wasn't going to send them over. They were busy trying to rebuild their navy after a couple of pretty serious defeats at the hands of the French. They needed every long gun they could get their hands on. 
The other twenty-four guns that had been aboard the Fancy were probably dispersed among the ships that guarded Nassau Harbor, including Governor Trott's own personal craft. There may have been a gun battery up at Government House to guard any approaches by land, but I like to imagine that they left some of the guns on board the wreck of the Fancy, facing the water. It could be kind of an incognito gun battery for anyone that entered the harbor or anyone that tried to leave without permission. And I like that, that the Fancy may have stood guard over Nassau even after Henry Every disappeared. This is episode 239, The Sea Flower. The first of those ships that left Nassau, and should we still call them pirate ships? I mean, there were pirates on board, but... The first of the pirates' ships to reach the British Isles was the Isaac. Now, her intended destination was England, or maybe Wales, but somewhere on Great Britain. But she was diverted from that intended destination by a privateer. Someone hired by the Crown to guard the seas around the British Isles. And that privateer gave chase to the Isaac, probably had no idea who she was, but wanted to check her papers, you understand. But that forced the Isaac to land on Ireland, which they really weren't supposed to do. The Sea Flower was going to land on Ireland, and they might cause a ruckus before the Sea Flower arrived. But they did anyway. The Isaac put in first at, and I apologize today if my Irish is terrible, but at Ackill Sound on the western coast of Ireland. And a few of the pirates disembarked there at the Sound, and a few of the pirates disembarked their redackle, and it seems like they made the right choice. They disappeared into Ireland. None of them ever appeared in a courtroom or any historic record again. On the other hand, I suppose they could have made a very poor choice. Who's to say they didn't wind up in a shallow grave while some Irish brigands drank deep on their coin? But in the meanwhile, the Isaac made for Westport, the main port town on the western coast of Ireland. And Ireland seems to have been the right choice, too. It took a full week, an entire seven days, before anybody there in County Mayo even thought to inform the sheriff that there was a ship in the harbor he might want to check out. And when the sheriff did arrive, uh, his name was Thomas Bell, when he did arrive on the scene, there were only three men on board. Captain Hollingsworth, and two other pirates. The sheriff did not seem to realize that this ship might have any association with Henry Every, but even if he did, he didn't care. The one thing that concerned Sheriff Bell was taxable cargo. Any trade goods that had entered Ireland on this ship through this port were liable to taxation, so, you know, spices, dyes, fabrics, sugars, you get the gist. But money, hard specie in silver and gold, well, that was not taxable. And at the moment, Hollingsworth and those two other pirates only had coins on board, and they assured the sheriff that there had never been any taxable cargo whatsoever. Which definitely should have made the sheriff suspicious, but 
Mostly, he was upset at the total lack of tax income. But he did not have long to wait. Over the following few weeks, a suspicious number of reports started coming in, from all around Ireland, but mostly County Mayo at first, about seafaring Englishmen trying to trade, say, muslin. That's a thin, fine cotton fabric, and in 1696, they still weren't yet growing much cotton in America. That muslin came from India. Or maybe there was a scruffy sailor that walked into a grocer somewhere trying to sell a huge bag of nutmeg. Or who knows, the local tailor with a bag of indigo. Whatever the case, it was like somebody walking into a pawn shop with a big bag of diamonds. You know, a couple of weeks after Tiffany's gets knocked over, it was suspicious. And those guys, many of them, got picked up by the local authorities and put on trial, but here's the thing. When they heard the charges, they were not getting charged with piracy. I mean, they were obviously guilty of piracy, but no, they were getting charged with failing to pay the dockmaster. It was like, oh, we know you got the nutmeg, so you better pay up. And they did. You know, these pirates would pay the five or ten pounds or whatever it was, and then they'd get to walk away. Six men, though, were picked up in Ireland on suspicion of piracy. One of them turned state's witness, or I suppose properly it's supposed to be king's witness in this case. But this one man, William Phillips, testified against five of his brothers. And despite his credible testimony, the jury still acquitted the pirates. They got to walk away with their sea chests mostly full of treasure. And that's why Ireland seems to have been a good destination for the pirates. They don't seem to have been too interested in prosecuting men who broke English laws. Or reporting them. Or doing much of anything to stop the pirates from doing whatever they wanted, as long as no one got hurt. But William Bell, I suppose in an effort to redeem himself, did a decent bit of detective work here. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. He asked around at some of the local horse traders near Westport and found evidence of a man paying 10 pounds for a horse. He bought two of them, in fact, but that's way more than a horse was worth. 
And in fact, later reports would show that horse traders all around the region made a killing that summer. But this was the lead that Sheriff Bell had. And he followed the horsemen, the way that the horse trader pointed at first, but later on tracking them. And eventually he found two men, one named William Forsyth, one of the pirates on board the Fancy, and another man who was not one of the pirates, just booked passage over on the Isaac. Well, he found them sleeping in the wilderness on their way to Dublin and arrested them. Now, William Forsyth is going to wind up on trial in a few months' time, and you'd think this was where he got caught, right? But no. He made bail in Dublin and was sent on his way. Although... Once he crossed over to England, he was picked up in Newcastle, and it was there that he got sent to London to await trial for piracy. Another of the pirates who's going to wind up in that same courtroom was William Bishop. He also arrived on the Isaac and made his way to Devon, his home. That's the young, fresh-faced man who probably served his first voyage on board the Fancy. In the words of E.T. Fox, he tried to slip into a life of quiet obscurity as a tobacconist. But naturally, William Bishop was recognized by someone in his hometown, and he was arrested and sent to London. There's another story that's worth a brief mention here. A Mr. John Miller, one of the pirates from the fancy, joined up with the crew of the Charles, a privateer, a legal and sanctioned privateer, under a Captain Plowman. Just a good job, right? But Captain Plowman died just a few days after setting sail, and the quartermaster of the Charles took command, and his name was John Quelch. John Quelch would go on to become one of the more famous pirates of the dawn of the 18th century. And you know, similar stories are probably true for a lot of these guys. Pirates aren't exactly known for saving their money or investing wisely, and a lot of them probably signed up on privateer crews when the War of Spanish Succession broke out in just a couple of years. And who's to say some of those pirates from the fancy didn't wind up sailing under Hornigold or Teach or any of the other pirates of the Republic of Nassau. Finally, for the Isaac, there's Captain Thomas Hollingsworth. Hollingsworth sold the Isaac to a pair of outfitters there in Dublin. They were men who were looking for a good privateering investment. They secured a privateering commission for Captain Hollingsworth, who continued on as captain of the Isaac. I suspect that his experience in privateering although nothing that anyone would ever officially acknowledge, was what got him the job. You know, I certainly was not a crewman on board the Fancy, and I certainly did not take part in the Gunsway raid under Henry Every. But I do have a lot of experience. But everybody in Dublin knew who these guys were by that point. Regardless, this was a good job. A good, stable privateering job, a cushy gig patrolling the coasts of England and Ireland looking for, you know, French smugglers or what have you. That will be relevant in the future. But a few weeks later, the Sea Flower arrived. This was the last of the ships to depart Nassau, 
and the Sea Flower carried all of the higher-ranking officers from the fancy most of the names we know. She was commanded by Joseph Farrow, formerly of the Portsmouth Adventure, but she also carried Henry Avery. Beyond that, the Sea Flower carried the quartermaster, Henry Adams, and his wife, Mrs. Henry Adams. We don't actually have her name. But she also carried the other quartermaster, maybe the former quartermaster, named Joseph Dawson. There was also John Dan, who was about to turn King's Witness against a bunch of these guys, as well as John Sparks and James Lewis. Now, those are all the names that you really need to remember here. Names which will play a role in the drama to unfold in the future. There are a few others, though, worthy of note, but not that you need to remember. There was Samuel Dawson, Joseph Dawson's brother. There was the cook of the fancy, Thomas Johnson, and there was a Philip Middleton on board. And we actually know the names of quite a few of the other pirates that arrived in Ireland there in May and June 1696. And I had a bit recorded where I told you their names, but I've decided not to use that. It really felt a bit unnecessary. You know, it's just a list of names. Most of them got away with it, so that's great, but those names aren't mentioned in the accounts of the piracy or the testimonies that are to follow. They're just names taken at the docks. Who knows if it's even their real names? So, I won't bore you. But keep in mind, there's another almost 30 men walking around Ireland who are going to get away with it. The Sea Flower arrived in mid-June at, and this is the one that's giving me trouble, Dunfanaghy in the north of Ireland. The person manning the fort there at Dunfanaghy was named Maurice Cuttle, and he welcomed these sailors to Ireland. His title, and I love this, was actually the Land Waiter. John Dan would later tell the court that he and all of the other pirates each gave Mr. Cuttle three pounds in gold. And I'm having trouble discerning exactly what that means. It's the word pound that's giving me trouble here, and the varied representations of the word, well, they're not helping. Was it three pounds sterling, effectively equal to three dollars, but in gold? Well, that would have been a few pieces of chipped gold, or maybe some gold dust from each man. And added up from all the 23 pirates on board the Sea Flower, that would be about 69 pounds. Which, not bad for a day's work. And that's how some of the early sources and Stephen Johnson write it. The pound symbol, you know, the curvy L with the line through it. But E.T. Fox writes, and... This is how the copy of John Dan's testimony that I have, they write it as three pounds of gold. It's three pounds, LBS period, of gold. Now, if each of the pirates were to have given the land waiter three pounds of gold, that would have been a sizable portion of his wealth. It would have left Mr. Cuttle, at the end of the day, a wealthy man retire to the south of France with a beautiful young bride kind of wealthy. In modern American dollars, three pounds of gold is worth $214,000. 
in total. From each of the 23 pirates, that would equal just about $5 million. I doubt that they gave this land waiter $5 million. But it's also possible that the court reporter got confused, and it was in fact a bulk effort from all of the pirates who gave this man a total of three pounds of gold, or about $214,000. Regardless, he got paid off, and he let the pirates into Ireland. Now, most of the pirates, when they arrived in Ireland, either at Westport or at Dunfanaghy, they all went their separate ways. And later testimony seems to show us that nobody knew where anybody else was headed. And they could have been lying, of course, but that's a smart course of action. Depart separately at different times to places unknown, and no one can sell you out. And some of the men, some of those thirty or so men, disappeared into Ireland and then went wherever they went. Maybe they bought a piece of land and found a wife and settled in to raise sheep and children until the end of their days. In one case, one of the pirates still had a wife back in England. But there in Ireland, he married another woman. And some years later, he was an old man by this point, this act of bigamy, marrying while already married, was found out by his wife and he was brought up on charges and it was in that court trial that he was actually outed for piracy. But by that point, he was too old to serve any jail time. Problem is, though, in a place like Ireland, and no offense to Ireland, but in 1696, there just weren't that many places to go. So all of these pirates who took special precautions to go their separate ways without anybody knowing where they were going... Well, they all met back up in Ireland a few weeks later. It was like a, a family reunion for the fancy. Just groups of guys who hadn't seen each other in a couple of weeks, buying drinks and spending lavishly and singing songs and telling stories about all the piracy. And remember, these aren't Irishmen. These are English and Welshmen primarily. People noticed. But no one much cared. They were spending their money freely. Still, the word did get around, and a few officers did show up to arrest the pirates to really lay the law down. But once they got there, oh, wouldn't you know it, I just missed them, must have slipped out the back, who knows what happened. Oh, by the way, Captain, on a totally unrelated note, I'm retiring. Turns out the paltry sum that you've been paying me was plenty to buy a house. Well, bye. Now, know a few of the pirates, after they'd spent a few days in Ireland and got a read of the land, decided to book passage on ships to America. It was just too dangerous to stay this close to England. So they changed their names, found a ship, and built anonymous lives in Virginia or Massachusetts or Carolina or... Who knows, some of them may have returned to the West Indies. Maybe even Nassau. It was those who returned to England that got arrested. Nearly everyone that we've named today made their way to the shores of England and got picked up almost immediately. The usual case was that they had family there. The men who got away with it left their families behind. They had to. 
or else they'd wind up hanging at the end of a noose. Now, their tales are worth telling, individually, but we're going to tell those in more detail when it comes time to talk about the trial. Today, on our last episode of 2021, I would like to discuss the fate of Henry Every. And it's going to be a little bit disappointing, I'm afraid. The ends of pirate tales often are. And we could spend whole episodes discussing the theories about his whereabouts. And we will. Those are going to be important to the history of pirate literature and to the history of English piratical law. But those aren't reputable. Now, in the days after Henry Every arrived in Ireland, reports started to pop up all over the British Isles that he'd been seen in Dublin or Devon, or any of a dozen different cities. But those sightings became so frequent and so varied, I mean, people would see him in York and in Glasgow on the same day. If there were any true sightings of Henry Every, they got lost in the sea of falsehood. As far as reputable sources are concerned, we get one last glimpse of Henry Every. On the voyage over from Nassau, on board the Sea Flower, Mrs. Henry Adams fell for the charms of Mr. Henry Every. I don't imagine that it was a very pleasant voyage for the old quartermaster, Henry Adams, as shortly after leaving Nassau, his brand new bride shacked up with Every. After their arrival at Dunfanaghy, Henry Every, Henry Adams, and... Mrs. Adams, as well as John Dan and two or three others, stayed together for six days, traveling inland. I don't imagine Mr. Adams was particularly happy with this arrangement. Or perhaps it was just out of good sense, but for one reason or another, on day seven, Henry Every and Mrs. Adams departed the company. They went their own separate way. According to Mr. John Dan, they were headed to Dunagady in County Down. But I sincerely doubt that if Mr. Dan were telling the truth, Henry Every told him the truth. I doubt he ever saw Dunagady. And it was there, in the countryside of Ireland, that Henry Every and Mrs. Adams mounted their horses and rode away. And that is the last time that anybody anywhere in the world ever reputably saw Henry Every. We do, though, know one place he was not. Back in London, there was a Mrs. Henry Every. We know virtually nothing about her, save that she was married to the pirate, and that she would be brought in for questioning during the manhunt. She didn't know anything, and they let her go, but they did watch her closely for the next couple of years. But Henry Every never returned to his wife in London. Had he done so, he'd have fallen into that same trap so many others did. A few months later, shortly after the trial was concluded, a stroke of good luck. She came into a windfall of money, not a huge amount, but enough to ensure that she would not starve, that she would be fairly comfortable until the end of her days. 
As you might imagine, the authorities caught wind of this and checked it out, but everything appeared to be on the up and up. Apparently, she'd lost some uncle that she'd never met, but he left her a reasonable amount of money, and she had the papers to prove it. At around that same time, John Dan turned up at his local magistrate there in London with quite a story. There he was, crossing the street in the center of London, when he saw none other than Mrs. Henry Adams. She was climbing into a nice, clean, if not exactly ornate, carriage, and dressed in a fine dress. She was closing the carriage door, preparing to depart, but he managed to catch up with her at the very last minute. Mrs. Adams, he said, it's me, John Dan. And she smiled. Where are you off to? he asked. And she leaned in. To my husband, Mr. Bridgman. And with a wink, the carriage trundled off into the streets of London, never to be seen again. Dusty Tavern was kingdom of a witchy 
Tonight.